You're listening to Michael Easley In Context. Welcome to In Context. I'm Hannah Seymour, your host, and I am in the studio, as always, with my padre, Michael Easley. (laughs) Afternoon, Hannah. How you doing? I'm doing peachy. How are you? I am great. You are headed to Israel soon. Yes. In a matter of days, we take about 45 pilgrims and we go to the Holy Land. Wow. How many tours have you done? I think this is number 16, but I'm not precisely sure. And tell me about the first time that you went as a pilgrim yourself. Yeah, I was in a a church in D.C., and a woman from the church came up and said, have you ever been to Israel? And I said, no, and she basically uh, badgered me (laughs) and said, you need to go to Israel. And so we had a group there that was, we organized a group, and I went. The first time I took Dr. John Hanna, one of my professors from Dallas Seminary, and he did the Bible teaching, and I was just along for the tour. And then uh, after that, many trips with Dr. Charlie Dyer, who really taught me how to do the tours. Wow. I tell people, you read the Bible in black and white, but when you go to Israel, you see it in 3D. Mm-hmm. And even with all the technology we have and stuff we can look at online, it's you, know, you can't see the Grand Canyon on a 4K screen. You got to go stand on the South Rim and look at the Grand Canyon. The same is true with Israel. Mm-hmm. These sights and sounds, you've got to go see them if you want to dig deeper and see what this land is like. Why did God choose this place of all places to call his people to create a nation to bring Jesus to the world? Yeah, I've been twice with you, as you know. But the first time I went, it seems so simple, but what were, in my mind, characters, David, Goliath, all these men and women throughout Scripture, they're main characters of stories. But when going to Israel, standing in places where we can say, we know that this happened Mm -hmm. within about 100 yards from here, it really put flesh and bones for me on those men and women and understanding they are as real as I am today standing in this place. I think about Superbook. I don't know if you even remember that <laughs> yes. from the 80s as that book would open and the color shines <laughs> out of it. And that really was my yeah, experience yeah. going to Israel. It's funny because people ask me the highlight that I have and I don't want them to know my highlight because I want hmm. it to be their story. Mm-hmm. And different things strike me different times. But your illustration, uh, many people in Masada is one of their highlights, which I always find, yeah. It's depressing. It's a sad story, but Matsuda being David's stronghold, so more than likely David was up there. Sure. Obviously, what we look at today was Herod's construction, not David's. But at any rate, you trek these areas, and to your point, human nature hasn't changed. Yeah. Technology, we think we're smart, we have more literature (laughs) available, we have books, we have scholarship. But if you lived at that time, you didn't need scholarship. Mm-hmm. Because it was your life. It was your mm-hmm. world. So whether it's David or Saul or Goliath, the Valley of Elah, uh, Banias, Panias, Caesarea Philippi, uh, Bethsaida, Bachan, down the line. I mean, each one of these stories. And the layers are so instructive because wherever you dig in Israel, you'll find something. Hmm. So every time they dig, they find yet another layer of something. They just found some more Dead Sea Scrolls in the Essene community in the last month. Wow. We won't know what those contents are for quite some time because the way the antiquities ministry will handle them. But Hmm. everything they find always confirms the scripture. Hmm. They've yet to find any archaeological fact that challenges or questions or calls into question the veracity of the Bible. So it's just such a living, interesting place. And, of course, the people are fabulous. They're Mm -hmm. different, (laughs) you know, for Westerners. Um, But you fall in love with the people, the food, the culture. A lot of people say it feels a little like home Hmm. when you're there. Wow. 
So for the next four weeks, we are going to go on our own little journey on In Context. Where are you taking us today? Once we arrive in Tel Aviv, and by the way, just in full disclosure, the flight over and back is miserable. <laughs> <laughs> it's just long. You have to get over it. Sleep your way to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> but once you get to Tel Aviv, we take a bus and we go north about an hour. And the first site we go to is Caesarea on the Mediterranean Ocean. Now, Herod the Great built this seaport that is unrivaled. In fact, arguably, it'd be one of the top, let's say, 20 wonders of the world. Huh. Uh, it is an incredible seaport. I mean, the Romans invent cement. Mm -hmm. They build these reefs in order to let boats come in. There's a hippodrome there where they had mm -hmm. races. Mm -hmm. There's an amphitheater that's still in use today. It's a magnificent place that Herod the Great built. And we go there for a number of reasons. One, it's right there on the coast. Two, there's a stone that they uncovered that has a Pontius Pilate inscription on it. We have to think of materials today because we, when houses are built, they tear them down. They, they don't reuse anything anymore. You might reuse a door or something special, but in antiquity, a stone was a stone. Hmm. And you reuse that thing as many ways as you could if it was destroyed or, or tumbled down. And so there's a stone that apparently had been reused and when they uncovered it, the face of it had Pontius Pilate, Puricator, on it. So as a tetrarch, he probably had a home in Caesarea. So again, archaeology confirms the reality mm -hmm. of these stories, reality of these characters. You also walk along the area, and we go to the amphitheater there mm -hmm. where we know Paul would have been present. We don't know the exact spot he stood. Sure. But you get the old rock yeah. probably where he was yeah. and where he goes and speaks before Felix. And he spends two years there. And from there, the gospel goes out. So it's a great place to begin to see the archaeology, to see what a dig looks like. Hmm. The word tell, think of a layer, Tel Aviv, Tel Dan. When a city was destroyed after misuse or weather or a marauders came in and took over the city, mm -hmm. they would literally push everything over. Well, then time passes and people come back and rebuild the city. Hmm. So at Megiddo, for example, they found 21 different tell layers wow. of people groups that have rebuilt parts of that area, Megiddo. So that's why I say everywhere you dig in Israel, you find something <laughs> find new. Something, yeah. And it's an archaeological dream for people to spend time over there. Wow. Well, let's jump in and go to Caesarea. When you go to Israel, we will take you to a number of incredible sites. The Bible will turn from black and white print or maybe a screen on your phone to three-dimensional. You'll walk, you'll smell, you'll see, you'll taste. All your senses will come to play, and you will know that you're in the land of the book, the land where God decided to send his son, where God decided to call the nation where God decided to raise his son, where God decided to begin the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. Well, if you're a pilgrim, once you arrive in Israel and you experience jet lag, you'll spend your first night near Caesarea. And that'll be the first stop most pilgrims will make when they go to Israel. Caesarea, of course, built on the Mediterranean Sea. And the name tells us it was a tribute to Caesar. The word Caesar is a self described title. In fact, it worms its way into German as Kaiser. But Julius Caesar was a self-appointed God-man, and the Caesars, of course, ruled and reigned over the largest empire of the world at the time. So they built this port, Herod the Great. It's a port without equal. 
It's a magnificent display of engineering and architecture of the day. And we begin our tours there, and we walk down through these ruins, and we come to a theater, sometimes called the Herodian Theater. It seats uh, somewhere north of 20,000 people. And we uh, walk down in our group, and we stand close to the center, and we begin here. Now, there's a lot about Caesarea you'd want to see. For example, they uncovered a stone with the inscription of Pontius Pilate on it, and they have a facsimile there in the ruins you can go see. That tells us that Pontius Pilate probably had a residence there about the time of Christ's life. But we start at the theater, and we begin actually with the story of Paul. We first read about it in Acts chapter 8. We're introduced to Philip, of course, and he goes to preach in Caesarea. But as the story of Acts unfolds, Peter comes to Caesarea in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. And of course, he has this vision. He's hungry and he falls into a kind of trance and he sees the sky open and this object like a great sheet coming down. And on the sheet are all kinds of four-footed animals, crawling creatures of the earth, birds of the air. And a voice says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean and unholy. Again, the voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. So Peter sees this. This moves him then to go to Caesarea where he meets a man named Cornelius. And in that exchange between the vision that Peter had, a vision that Cornelius had that occurs in Caesarea, it's very clear the gospel is going to the Gentiles in a very dramatic way. Well, as Acts unfolds, we have a number of different stories that happen at Caesarea, but I want to end with Acts chapter 23 at the theater proper. And so once we've walked through the ruins, we've talked a little bit about the aqueduct, we've seen the Pontius Pilate stone, we've looked at artifacts at Herod's pool, at some of the entertainment that he had for himself, his love of water, the dock itself. Then we stand in the theater and we go to Acts 23 and begin the story of where Paul, because a threat has been made on his life, is taken by 200 guards to Caesarea. They move him there late in the afternoon uh, to prevent an attack on his life. Well, he'll stand before Felix the governor. And in Acts 24, we read of Paul standing before Felix. And Luke gives us the record of this in great detail. Now, for a backdrop, he's going to spend two years in prison in Caesarea waiting for something. And during this time, he has an audience with Felix. And let me read you from portions of Acts 24. About five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullius, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for the nation, we acknowledge in every way, therefore, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. Just to interject there, he's really kissing up to Felix. Verse 4, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law, but Lysias, the commander, came along with much violence took him out of our hands. 
ordering his accusers to come before you. And on this charge goes, and it's so over the top, there's so much hyperbole in the accusations. But finally, we get to the point where Paul is speaking to the governor. And he says in verse 10, Acts 24, knowing for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Now, here's Paul in prison, waiting for a hearing, waiting for trial, waiting for possible execution or hoping for freedom. He doesn't know. And he says in his opening remark, I cheerfully make my defense. It raises the question, when something goes poorly for us, are we cheerful in our opportunity to have our saying, or are we defensive and angry? Well, he continues and says, neither in the temple nor in the synagogues nor in the city did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherished themselves, that there will certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now, Paul's defense goes on in great detail, and I encourage you to take a look at Acts 24 on your own. But just three points as you think about your trip when you go to Israel and you stand in Caesarea and you stand in that theater overlooking the Mediterranean Sea and you envision the beginning of the gospel where he says he cheerfully makes his defense, he believes in the law and the prophets, he has a hope in God that there is a resurrection and that he's blameless in his conscience before God and men. He makes a cheerful defense. He believes in the law and the prophets. We'd say he believes in the Bible. He hopes in the God of the resurrection, and he has a blameless conscience before God and men. And then finally, he makes one comment in verse 21, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. For the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. So if you can envision yourself sitting on these stone seats overlooking the Mediterranean, envisioning Paul standing there making a defense before Felix, and he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection. It's a good beginning for a tour in Israel because as we start the tour going from city to city, village to village, all the way back to the Old Testament time of Abraham, all the way up to the current time of Christ's life in Galilee and ultimately his crucifixion and resurrection, Paul says, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection. So from that theater, it is amplified. The gospel goes out across the world. And so where his accusers may have been hyperbolic, saying he stirs up the whole world, he's a ringleader throughout the whole area, they didn't know what they were saying. They were trying to inflame the argument that he was a bad guy. And what God is doing is using Paul as a megaphone for the gospel. You know, if you've heard the gospel, if you know Christ, you and I, in true sense, have a direct line back to that theater, because that's where Paul begins to take the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and the remotest part of the world. It's the land where the book was given, a land where God chose those people to be his people. He chose them to be a nation, and he chose through that nation to bring the Messiah. And Paul says boldly, I am on trial because of the resurrection. How about you and me? Do we give a cheerful defense? Do we have a hope in God that there is a resurrection? 
And then can we smile at the future, living with a blameless conscience before God and men? This is Michael Easley in Context.